If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien and now Nicole Braddock Bromley. Well, today, Mary and I have our friend Maureen Garcia. She has actually already been on the podcast in the past, a professor in New York City and um, a well-known writer. I really have appreciated her writing and her work and her heart on the issues specifically related to sexual abuse and her story she shared uh, a few podcasts ago, it's probably been, what, a year, I think, yeah. maybe, since we yeah. had Maureen. Thanks for coming back and joining us today, Maureen. Hi. <laughs> well, um, there's been so much in the news lately um, related to our topic today and something that actually hits really close to home for me. And mm-hmm. you had a lot to say about it. And I'm really looking forward to picking your brain on the topic of just exposed abusers and and suicide and things like power and control, um, apologies and, and things of that matter when it comes to abusers being exposed. And it, it hits close to home for me simply because for those who are listening and maybe don't know much about my story, um, you know, I've written a few books and I, I've been speaking for many, many, many years now, sharing my story on stages where I talk about, you know, I was sexually abused my entire childhood by my stepdad, someone who was well-known in our community, someone that was respected and trusted, and for many reasons, I felt like I couldn't talk about it, and so I held this horrible secret inside for almost a decade of my childhood, and I finally found the courage to tell my mom when I was 14 years old, and at that time, um, you know, I also had created this life where no one would have ever suspected that something like sexual abuse was happening in my home. And so when I finally told, I was frightened as to what was going to happen. I wanted the sexual abuse to end, but I also didn't want to shatter lives. I didn't want to tear apart my family. I didn't want other people to look at me differently. I I wanted to keep our life the way that it was. I just wanted the abuse to end. Um, But when I told my stepfather, my abuser ended up committing suicide. And so that is a big part of my story, the way that he responded to the exposure of his abuse. And it was something that I had to work through apart from the abuse because I felt guilty And I didn't really know what it meant, but I do know that from day one, the moment that I was told that he had shot himself, I knew that that was not him being remorseful. I knew that it was not him feeling bad about what he did. I knew that that was another power play. And Maureen, that's a little bit of what you've been talking about, you've been tweeting about, and um, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts, too. I know you reached out to me on Twitter to get my thoughts, and uh, um, I think that we line Mm -hmm. up 
very closely. So um, can yeah. you talk a little bit about this whole thing about exposed abusers and suicide and, and, you know, the latest story that we are all hearing and talking about in the news and all of that? Well, first, um, it's so heartbreaking what happened with you, um, what your stepfather did with you. And then to, to end it that way, to cause you more grief and mm-hmm. guilt, um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's so heartbreaking. Um, but it, it is a very common thing for exposed abusers to not be able to handle um, being exposed. Right. Um, the most recent example we have in the news is uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Exactly. And, um, you know, he had been on suicide watch after his first attempt to commit suicide. And then at some point he was taken off suicide watch and then mm. um, completed the suicide. Mm. And um, lots of people have lots of opinions. Some of the opinions are, well, good for him. You know, it's, we're better off without having him. And, um, sure. you know, which you can understand. I can. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think a lot of us go mm-hmm. back and forth with that, you know, on, yeah. on one hand, there were days when I was so grateful I could go back to school and not have a bodyguard and to not right. be watching my back everywhere, thinking that he was going to come and get me. Um, right. But also mm-hmm. there was the guilt of, you know, he was a father to other people and, and, you know, he was a friend and he was a life and, you know, yeah. so there was so many things to go through, but that was one for sure. Like, yeah, for what he did, mm-hmm. I... <laughs> Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that what you're talking about, that whole, um, especially for um, victims and survivors, there's that ambivalence where you're feeling one thing that's positive and a bunch of other things that are also negative at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's very common. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's part of the effect of, of when we've been groomed. Absolutely. Um, so because on the one hand, like you said, um, you knew him as he's your stepdad, and you know, you know, you, don't, you didn't want to shatter the family. You didn't want to. You just wanted the abuse to stop. So there's some degree to which you cared about him. Um, yes. And at the same time, there's an enormous degree to which you, you know, want him to <laughs> not do those things, or yeah. maybe enraged at him, or or um, even hate him at moments. And this mm. this ambivalence of loving and hating someone at the same time is a really difficult thing to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you bring our faith into it, it's this idea that, well, he's also created in the image of God, um, as marred and twisted and distorted as it is. Um, so there's just, you know, um, a sadness and, and, a, um, and a horror that somebody created in God's image could do those kind of things, mm-hmm. you know. Absolutely. But um, so when Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, people had lots of opinions. And um, the difficulty with being happy about them committing suicide um, or being relieved, although I can understand the relief, especially if you were one of his victims. Um, But the relief isn't just going to be relief. Again, it's going to be this ambivalence because Mm -hmm. um, committing suicide, like you said, this had nothing to do with your stepfather feeling remorseful. Um, It had to do with it's another power play. Um, it is it is the final gesture of victim stancing, of them stating, I'm really the victim. Look mm-hmm. what you've done to me. I completely um, which, agree. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, like you said, makes the victim feel more guilty. You yes. experienced guilt because of that. Yeah. Um, I remember feeling and, left with all of this mess to put back yeah. together from the abuse. And then now yep. it was like someone just threw on a pile of more glass shards onto that pile I already had to put mm-hmm. to put together now because of how he ended it and there was no confession mm-hmm. there was no admitting uh, it was mm-hmm. just uh, a suicide note full of you know woe is me and I'm the victim here and my life will never be the wow. same 
And mm-hmm. so I do feel like, yeah, it, it is a grand gesture of victim stancing and, mm-hmm. and, it's, and you're leaving your victims with more to go through. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And the image that you just used was so visceral, the idea that you have this mess that you have to sort through of all the abuse for all those years. And then on top of that, these glass shards mm-hmm. just thrown into your open wounds, um, you know, and they they're essentially leaving their victims, their primary victims, the ones that they've sexually abused, and their secondary victims, like your mom, the ones that they've deceived and um, also groomed to believe him. And uh, they're just leaving everybody with no, just no answers. Mm. Um, Not necessarily that you'd get answers if he was still alive, but um, there's not even the possibility of it. And then I think that's the part of it, the possibility, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, yes, I know that on one hand, you know, there will be some survivors who look at my story and they're like, you know, that I wish that that had happened to my abuser because I don't want to see them, you know, at the annual family Mm -hmm. reunion. I wish I could never see them again. But then on on my side of things, you know, I I do understand that. But I I think, well, you have the potential. It's probably very slim, but the potential of maybe watching that person realize what they did and right. be sorry for it and work on themselves and get better and, and, and try to make up for it. That to me, mm-hmm. just having that possibility of that human being able to, to take ownership and work on their own health, you know, that yeah. mm-hmm. it seems slim, but it also seems like something I would have wanted to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There is, there's a possibility. Uh, and again, you're right. The probability is not very high. Unfortunately, experts like Anna Salter, Judith Herman, they, they talk about, um, you know, when you have an offender in treatment, some of them can take to treatment. Um, the ones that can legitimately feel guilt and remorse um, are, or, like, or who feel conflicted in themselves or in pain because, or are suffering in some way because of what they're doing, um, they have a better chance of being motivated to seek treatment, not necessarily succeed in treatment, though. Um, and then the ones who don't feel any guilt or remorse, just feel shame at the fact that they've been exposed, um, there's no real possibility of, mm-hmm. of them um, being treated and coming to any kind of um, self-awareness of what they've done. Mm-hmm. For an offender in treatment to be able to um, move forward, get better, uh, begin to sift through all the um, processing and cognitive errors that they have that allow them to rationalize and abuse, they would have to develop a considerable amount of victim empathy, um, and they would have to, um, mm-hmm. well, they would just have to be super committed to, to working through this. And it's so, it's so rare mm-hmm. for them to, um, for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you need skilled people to be able to recognize how to, how to treat um, abusers. Yeah. So. Yeah. And we've it's interviewed, you know, a few of them on our past podcasts. And I think those have mm-hmm. been really enlightening and insightful. Yes. And it does mm-hmm. give hope that, that, that there is a chance, but you're right. It has to be a very committed process and they have yep. to have a great therapist, like the ones we've had on the podcast working with them. Absolutely. Yeah. But the victim mm-hmm. compassion and empathy is huge because yes. you have mm-hmm. to be willing to admit that what you did is, you know, so evil, yes. so wrong, right. and ruins and lives, entire lives. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
It absolutely, it, it just, it completely twists your view of who God is, of who you are, of how you are to engage in relationships. Mm. Um, in your case, it would twist, you know, what, what's fatherhood, yeah. you know? Right. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about what you said about the whole, you know, yes, they need victim empathy. And some people have difficulty when they find out that somebody that they know and love has done this because mm. they've experienced that person empathizing with them in other situations. Mm -hmm. And there are some offenders that are able to do that. Um, But the key thing is when they're offending, they cannot empathize with their victim. Mm -hmm. So just because somebody can empathize in other contexts doesn't necessarily mean that they're not an abuser. So, And I think the power and control piece is really important for people to acknowledge because Mm -hmm. when Jeffrey Epstein took his life, you know, everyone's talking about it and everyone has their opinions. But it's difficult from a survivor standpoint to hear everyone's opinion about that because we feel a certain way. And Mm -hmm. when we hear someone else replying with, well, he he got what he deserved or, you know, or I guess, you know, he he was admitting it. And that and that's Mm -hmm. what actually was told to me after my stepfather took his life was that that was the court substantiated my disclosure and saying that his his suicide was his admission of guilt and mm-hmm. okay in one way that felt like ugh, a little bit of justice because yeah you know the courts saw what i said as true or believed it but yeah. also mm-hmm. it didn't feel like justice because he didn't have to walk through anything right absolutely yeah Mm-hmm. So I felt like so, even in this current case, it was denying the survivors, the, his victims, um, the justice that they mm-hmm. deserved. And also, I felt like it closed the chapter on this case to where I don't mm-hmm. know if more victims would have come forward if he was still alive and going through the process. Mm-hmm. You know, right? I, I question mm-hmm. that. But it, it's difficult to hear people's different responses um, you know, based yeah. on a survivor's experience of that and how that feels um, for someone yeah. to just kind of end the case. Mm-hmm. Right. So on the one hand, what you were saying with your, with your stepdad was that, you know, the courts, um, you know, saw that what you were saying was true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a degree of affirmation there. And part of the problem with grooming and abuse in general is that it's so crazy-making and you, you're just, sometimes you don't know whether or not you're sane because the things that happen when you're being abused are secret things mm-hmm. and there's no validation for them outside of the context of being abused because you can be abused and then your abuser 20 minutes later can be acting like the perfect, mm-hmm. um, you know, teacher, lawyer, father, whatever. Right. And it makes you think like, okay, I can't possibly, this can't possibly be the way I perceive it. There must be something wrong with the way mm. I think or my sanity or whatever. So to have the court say to you, no, this is absolutely, this confirms to us what you've said. Mm. Um, that's great because to a degree it, it gives you some kind of outside affirmation um, that says, yes, you're absolutely right. You're not crazy. You're totally sane. And then, again, on the other hand, it denies you the right to to face him in court mm-hmm. with emotional and legal support. It denies you the right to um, pursue justice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, 
it's just, again, another way to cause more guilt and shame and pain is to just commit suicide and take yourself out. And the way that relates to power and control is is simply um, for someone like Epstein, he's somebody who's used to having um, control over pretty much every area of his life because mm-hmm. he's, he's wealthy enough to be able to do that. Um, so right. now he's in prison and he literally has no control over what he can wear, what he can do, when he can do it. Um, so that has to be, the problem isn't just the lack of control. It's that once he has the lack of control, he has to butt up against the reality that the delusional world that he's created where he's entitled to abuse Mm -hmm. is not reality Mm -hmm. and that he is going to suffer consequences. Um, Anna Salter talks about one of the cognitive distortions of abusers being super optimism. And that basically means that they assume that they're just never really going to get caught. And if they do, that people are going to let them go. And right. then they can be bolder in their abuse afterwards. Yeah. Um, so someone like Epstein being in prison and knowing that it was imminent that, um, you know, he was going to suffer more consequences. And then the idea of having to face his, um, his victim survivors um, and what they would say, he has to deal with, um, he wants to regain control of others' perspective of him. He wants to regain control over his victim's perspective of him. He wants to regain control over his own perspective of himself, and he can't do any of that in Mm -hmm. that circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so for someone like that, the best thing to do would be, I can regain control over my victims by killing myself and causing them further harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all of that, what you just said, is what I have gone through in my processing of my own Mm -hmm. story. You know, mm-hmm. uh, and and the suicide note that was left by my stepdad was very much all of that, that he could never regain the life mm-hmm. that he had. He would never have the power back. He would. Mm-hmm. Everything was lost. Yeah. But now, in a way, it in was there? putting it on me that it was my right. fault that it was lost. Yes. He couldn't mm-hmm. even name yeah. me in his letter. He just wrote a letter oh. N whenever he referred to me. So it all of it felt to me as a way of saying mm-hmm. I'm giving up I'm giving up trying but I'm also trying to get control back in whatever way I can by sticking right. it to her you know what I mean mm-hmm. Which, yeah absolutely yeah and it's so it's dismissive um for him not to acknowledge what he's done to you and it for, for the letter to be all about him um that's just mm-hmm. yeah and not to use your full name. It's, yeah. it's almost like he was continuing to, to attempt to dehumanize you, Absolutely. Um, even yes. in that one final letter. It really was, yeah. The last mm-hmm. thing that was said um, towards me was that I didn't deserve my dog. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, delusional. <laughs> but, but, oh, that he, but that he was going to let me have her back. Because he had her uh-huh. when my mom and I left that week. Mm-hmm. Um, we left the dog at the house. But, uh-huh. I mean, what was he going to do anyways? <laughs> like, right. Mm-hmm. Although maybe but he would have taken her life too. Who knows? But I'm just like, thanks, mm-hmm. guy. Ugh. Thanks, guy, for letting me have my dog I don't deserve because I told on you. Yeah. You asshole. Ugh. It's so am- amazing that, like, well, first that you're you're able to laugh about it now because <laughs> well, now you yeah. can see how blatantly it's he Mary's was just here. trying to be mean. <laughs> Well, survival you know, he was just mode. laughing out. Well, it's just even talking about, you know, so many of these 
perpetrators, just the narcissism is just, yep. you you almost have to laugh that they live in this <laughs> delusional la-la land that you're just looking at them like, oh my gosh, you're buying the bullshit that's coming out of yeah. your mouth. Yeah, your like, are mouth. you kidding me? Right, right. It's mm-hmm. insane, yep. but it is crazy how they're able to manipulate, um, you know, their, mm-hmm. their victims mm-hmm. and you prey mm-hmm. on those insecurities and it's disgusting and awful. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to believe children when they come forward, because the majority of children do not disclose abuse. They don't even have the vocabulary to do it, um, let alone the understanding of what's actually happening. And um, right. so when kids come and, and disclose, we need to believe them, mm-hmm. because if they disclose and they're not believed, their abusers now can become even more bold. Mm-hmm. Um, think like Larry Nasser. Every single time someone disclosed and told and they let him kind of slip through the cracks there or believed whatever his spin was, he became more and more bold to the point where he's abusing people while he's talking to their parents right there. Right. Yes. Yep. They just take um, it a step further because they feel even more untouchable. It's like the thing they want to believe about themselves becomes more and more true as people Mm -hmm. don't believe those who are disclosing. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to what Anna Salter says about their super, super optimism. The more people tell and are not believed, um, the more they are super optimistic that they will never, ever get caught, no matter how bizarre and crazy their abusing becomes, mm. no matter how bold they become. Right. Um, my own ex apparently would do things while I was in the room with mm. my back turned. So I would turn to make a cup of tea, and he would expose himself to his victim or I would go to the bathroom down the hall and he would abuse his victim while I was just a couple of steps away. Um, so, I mean, I know a lot of people will be like, oh, but I'm home in the house. So, you know, there's no possibility that this person could ever do it. And it's like, no, they will do it in front of you. I remember an instance where I was abused as a child where I was sitting on someone's lap in a room full of other people. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, you can't just your present. You have to know what to look for. Yeah. Um, because people that are, that are, like you said, this delusional and this bold will, will abuse in front of others. And you don't want to um, believe that it's true about these people, but we absolutely. have to pay attention to any yep. red flags that we feel, any instinct, especially as like a parent, you know, any mm-hmm. instinct that you have, listen to your gut and pay attention to those warning signs. You know, it's yep. the same way absolutely. with my abuse. It started off, you know, as a game mm-hmm. or whatever. And right. my mom mm-hmm. was never around. But then mm-hmm. it got it got more outward and more yeah just it seemed like oh well working I'm, about in the open yeah yeah and, mm-hmm. and then my mom was maybe nearby this time but she had her back to us gardening and then right. it progressed then as I was probably about middle school when it would happen while. I had friends over. I remember telling right. you about this recently, yeah. Mary. Where I would have friends over and we would be playing a pickup basketball game outside and he would grab me in some way. But they, no one would know. No one would see it. But it was still yes. in a public area. So it would then yes. make me feel as a victim, maybe this stuff isn't wrong. If, if you would do it in front of people, mm-hmm. you know, so you right. question even your own sanity as the victim. Yep. Right. And that's part of the intention. Um, when they're doing that, that's part of the grooming to make you second-guess yourself. Um, So what happens is when they're doing that in public, it feels surreal. 
It doesn't feel like it's yeah. fully real. No. And if nobody responds to it like it's a violation, yeah. then it's like, well, it must not be a violation. Right. Yeah. Um, but the feeling is like this feeling of unreality. Yeah. Um, and I remember then kicking just, my stepdad when that happened, when I had friends over. I kicked him so hard in the leg that he fell to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, and then he made me look like an idiot. Yep. Like, what yep. are you mm-hmm. doing? That came out of nowhere. But I couldn't say mm-hmm. what had happened in front of my right. friends. So everyone thinks I'm crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that's that's totally, that's a common tactic, actually. Mm. The making you look like you're the crazy one. Yeah. Because I mm-hmm. couldn't say what had really happened. So the other thing that I was thinking of, this mm-hmm. idea that, that Christian leaders have this ability to kind of like be so bold and so arrogant. Mm. Um, we've seen a number of that, uh, cases like that over the last few years, not necessarily of, of children, sexual abusers, but of, um, of teenagers and of other mm-hmm. adults. Right. So there's been like Jules Woodson's abuser, Andy Savage. Absolutely. That's who I was just thinking about. Yeah, when he comes out to apologize and gives this whole apology to his congregation, they give him a standing ovation. Now, how surreal and crazy is that if you're the victim, that a whole congregation, you know, is buying his bullshit, and they're all adults. Yes. You know, because they don't know what to look for, and they've most likely been groomed from the pulpit to begin with. Um, And then you have Paige Patterson who's sexualizing teenage girls and shaming and bullying rape victims, and he gets a standing ovation. And then Bill Hybels, he hasn't admitted that he's done anything wrong. He gets a standing ovation, Mm. Um, you know. And then the most recent one that's been all over the news, like the last week, is uh, Tullian Trevigian, where, Mm. you know, he um, he engages in clergy abuse. He abuses an adult and has um, a sexual relationship with someone who's a congregant. And um, he refuses to accept that this is abuse. Uh, he says that this is to consenting adults. It doesn't matter what role someone has or what degree of power someone has. Mm-hmm. Um, but now he's back in ministry again. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, these guys need to not be in ministry anymore. And people don't recognize how destructive and harmful and abusive they are. And then they just get these people on a bandwagon behind them. And, yep. you know, mm-hmm. then they become oftentimes louder than the victims yep. mm-hmm. and so yeah you know it's easy for people just to follow in line and and say what they're saying without really mm-hmm. hearing what's being said and thinking with our minds right. and our hearts and hearing the victim stories you know i'm so proud of of jules for how she continues to speak out and be a voice um despite Absolutely, that yeah. ovation like that would be so so hard and you know mm-hmm. just really admire her courage and so many of the others that are out there but yes she has a really important voice Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and just in the christian community i think that it's one of the most disgusting things that i've seen i guess when Mm -hmm. churches will come alongside the perpetrator for the sake of forgiveness or you know this person's changed but then just leaving victims on on the side of the road bleeding and, and not acknowledging them and not bringing them in. And I, I just don't understand it. I forgot who it was. It might've been Judith Herman. Somebody talks about how it's always easier to empathize with the perpetrator than it is with the victim. Mm. Um, because the perpetrator just asks you to, you know, support them and that they're getting better and whatever. But the victim, victim asks you to come alongside them. And, you know, to a degree, when you empathize with a victim, you're experiencing their, um, victimhood vicariously, mm. 
Um, and it's difficult for a lot of people to do that, especially in certain church cultures where we have this whole kind of anti-victim um, belief. Mm-hmm. You know, we even have songs that declare, I am no victim. Um, and yet somehow, you know, this is supposed to be worshiping Jesus, who pretty much was like the ultimate victim, mm-hmm. you know. There's so much stigma and shame around victimhood, mm-hmm. um, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't really be that way. Um, everybody is victimized at some point in their life by someone, even if it's just, right. you know, something minor. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a part of being human. Right. Um, but there's so much shame attached to it, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that's one of the things people don't want to connect with that shame. They would prefer to victim blame, and they'd prefer to empathize with the abuser. And, um, and, of course, the other thing is if you blame the victim and you have a bunch of rules about why the victim was victimized, then to a degree you can control mm-hmm. in your own mind whether or not that stuff can happen to you. That's so true. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. So, but you what can't are your really, thoughts? But, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. then on how, you know, we can change this with the church two stuff going forward? You know how? Well, with, just mm-hmm. some, I guess, thoughts from you. I mean, I I already know a lot of what you would say, and I agree fully. But just for those listening, you know, how can we yeah. be a part of the change that's going to happen in in that culture when it comes to sexual abuse and? You know, right. abusers receiving consequences, those kinds of things. Well, I think a lot of what I would say would be similar to what you've said in the past. Uh, one thing that I think is absolutely imperative in order to start to change and shift the culture is we need to center victims' voices and experiences by providing them a platform. Mm-hmm. So like what you do when you go out and you speak and you give your testimony and you talk to people, it's very important that churches are also involved in inviting people like you or like me or like Mary or whoever to come and talk so mm-hmm. that um, victims' voices are heard. Absolutely. Because if you have victims' voices being welcomed from your pulpit, that automatically makes that church a less welcoming place for an abuser. Yeah. Because they know the yeah. victims will be believed and that victims will be valued. Yes, um, yes. And when it's less welcoming for an abuser, it's more welcoming for the abused and for those yes. who need healing Absolutely. to find it. Right. Mm-hmm. And for the abused loved ones as well. Because for I know lots of people who they know abusers and they love them and it's difficult for them to go to church because they know mm-hmm. how triggering it can be for the victim or, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so some of the other who say, we well, do. then where can the abusers go to church? <laughs> <laughs> then they need to listen to Jimmy Hinton, who I would agree with, where um, I think churches definitely should be creative in how they go about this. But Jimmy Hinton would say they're welcome to go to an adult only service. Um, but they shouldn't have access to children. They shouldn't yeah. be around children. Right. Um, and that's absolutely, I have, that's, I think that's extremely gracious under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, so some other stuff that would be good to help shift would be um, some of the behaviors that um, Judge Rosemary Aquilina did when mm-hmm. Larry Nasser was being, when she was, he was in court with her. She gave uh, she centered the victims' voices. She allowed them to speak. When Larry Nasser tried to respond publicly by writing a letter to the court, mm-hmm. she refused to allow him that platform. Yeah. She knew that it would just trigger the victims, blame them more, uh, make himself, you know, look like the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, Man, what a slander freaking the hero. She is an absolute mm-hmm. hero. I mean, I love her. Those kind love- of moves <laughs> if, from the, uh, it's just amazing to me. And it spoke right. so clearly. 
you know, yes. and people don't think mm-hmm. about what a move like that can do for right. both Absolutely. sides, but that Absolutely. was huge. Yeah, it was tremendous. Mm. And um, the problem with um, our church communities is we think, oh, but, you know, they should have a voice and yeah. they, they feel repentant and they feel remorse. And so why shouldn't we listen to them? But what we need to remember is part of the way that they groom is through using their words and their charm. Mm-hmm. And um, this is how they know how to interact with people. Just because they've been exposed doesn't mean they're going to change mm-hmm. their grooming um, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the stuff she did was great, just centering the victim's voices, um, not allowing him to have um, any kind of, you know, ability to speak to the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's, uh, just as long as we shift to centering victims in general, uh, that automatically creates an environment that is much more welcoming for victims, survivors, and much less welcoming for abusers. Because our churches, we have this idea that, you know, our theology is second chances, third chances, God forgives us, we repent. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a tendency to think of abuse, abusers as, oh, well, they need church because they need to repent. The victims don't really need church. Um, so they focus more on, on how do you deal with abusers and how do you um, minister to abusers. And it's also more sensationalistic and gets you more attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real work is in making victims feel welcome, making victims more centered, making victims um, listening to them to see and in mm-hmm. what way were they groomed, how were they groomed, how do leaders do this, and then understanding from what victims and experts are saying, you know, how do we prevent this from happening? Mm. Um, how do you recognize it? Uh, which leads to the next thing. You, of course, churches need to know what abuse is and, and what it looks like. Um, I remember a number of months ago, there was, um, I forgot who it was. It was one of the, some Southern Baptist who basically came out and tweeted very explicitly, I'm absolutely against abuse. There's mm-hmm. no place for it in our congregations. Mm-hmm. And I, I obviously agree. The problem is that for most Christians that um, come out of certain evangelical churches, they are anti-abuse but don't know what abuse looks like when it's actually happening. So, you know, um, domestic violence. Uh, John Piper comes out with his video saying, well, you know, a wife endures being slapped every once in a while um, because he doesn't know what abuse actually is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know the pattern of behavior and of control and of, of grooming. And mm-hmm. um, so they say they're against abuse, but they, they, they're willfully ignorant of what it actually is at this point. It's just willful ignorance. You're just choosing not to do the research, mm-hmm. um, not believe the victims, not believe the experts. Um, mm-hmm. So they need to become, you know, as in our sacred communities, we need to become more knowledgeable about what abuse looks like, mm-hmm. um, how it's actually lived out, not what myth or fantasy we believe in our head it is. Yeah, or what's been, you know, just tradition in your ch- yes. church or your family for years and years and years and Maybe mm-hmm. that's actually yeah. contributing, you know, to this culture Absolutely, that we live does. in where, you know, women and children are being objectified and sexualized Absolutely. and consent doesn't matter. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Consent is a big thing. We need to start talking about consent. Mm-hmm. We need to start reading books like um, Linda K. Klein's Pure, um, you know, other those type of books where it talks about the damage that purity culture has done um, and in what ways and how and, and how, to, um, how to process that and get through it to the other side. Yeah, because yeah. we're now on the side, we're seeing mm-hmm. how much 
harm it's caused. And if we Absolutely. are seeing that, we need to figure out how can we go back and fix this? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean uh, that we're all wrong or that God's wrong. It just means maybe we've been doing it a little bit wrong. And yeah. how can mm-hmm. how can we fix this so that we don't create the same culture for our children and our children's children? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for me, um, one of the things I, I do is I try to find, from doing research and from my own experience, the connecting points between the cognitive errors and distortions that abusers believe that allow them to justify and rationalize their abuse mm-hmm. um, and common Christian teachings that parallel or line up with those in some way. Every time we have some kind of belief that we're, we're teaching mm-hmm. as a sacred community mm-hmm. that lines up with a cognitive distortion of an abuser, that means that that community is being groomed every time that belief is being taught. Wow. Can you give so, an example? Yeah, absolutely. One of the most common ones is the whole, um, we need to police how, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old girls dress. If a 12-year-old is wearing a spaghetti strap tank top, um, she's distracting the boys. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is the way that that parallels how an abuser thinks is an abuser feels entitled to um, control what other people do, including how they dress, how they present themselves. An abuser feels victimized by other people. So, for instance, (laughs) abusers don't say, I looked at the 12-year-old and I got sexually aroused. They say, I looked at that 12-year-old and she aroused me. Mm. It was her choice, her Mm. body, her whatever. She did this to me. Um, And you can read that when you read some of the purity culture um, literature, if you read Every Man's Battle, well, what's the battleground? The battleground is our bodies. And they're basically saying that our bodies are doing something to them that they can't control. So yeah. who's the victim in that kind of scenario? No, that's good, though. It's it's just about the perspective that's taken. And it can seem so, like, you don't notice it if you're not trying to notice it. Right? Absolutely, yeah. Like the way that mm-hmm. that situation would be with a 12-year-old dressed in a certain right. way. If someone mm-hmm. responded in this one way or the other way, it sounds so similar until you right. really dissect it and think about it and wow how that has a ripple effect for everybody yeah. and then and continuing with that one example one of the things that happens during the grooming process is that the abuser is grooming the victim to not be aware of their own emotions their own desires their own feelings and their own affect mm-hmm. but to always be aware of the abuser's emotions and affect right so It's the same thing when we tell little girls, you need to dress this way because of boys. We're Mm -hmm. basically saying your desires, your comfort, your whatever takes a back seat to what may happen when those boys see you. Mm -hmm. It's not even guaranteed. It's a possibility. But everything that you are takes a back seat to something that's a possibility with them. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of um, causing them to be um, not the subjects of their own lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you can see how over time, especially if that little girl is um, exploited Mm -hmm. or taken advantage of or harassed in some way, she would Mm -hmm. grow up to now become a girl who's a people pleaser and wanting to serve Mm -hmm. every man's need. And all of her Mm -hmm. needs and desires take a back seat. Yeah, and she won't even be aware of them most of the time unless she has... Um, support along the way or intervention to help her to become aware of them. Wow. Um, another common thing that I've seen is sermons that highlight men's, I guess, their experiences or their, well, let me give you an example. 
So a number of times I have heard and I've read in commentaries the story where um, Lot has the visitors that are angelic and they come to his house. And then the men come and knock on the door and want Lot to throw the visitors out to them so that they can um, abuse them and rape them. And Lot uh, offers his daughters to the crowd instead of the um, foreigners. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times that will get interpreted because now now you see there's a tension there as a Christian. Well, what do you do do with that? Because we know from um, the New Testament that Lot's considered a righteous man. So how do you then reconcile him being righteous with him being willing to throw his daughters out to be, you know, gang raped all night long and possibly murdered? Um, So what a lot of sermons and commentaries will do is basically they will say, well, in that time period, in that place, the laws of hospitality superseded any other kind of law. So if he had thrown out these foreigners, that that would have been a worse sin than allowing his daughters to get raped. So that kind of interpretation mm-hmm. highlights that the safety of, of male strangers is more important than the integrity and lack of violation to your own family females. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I mean, I've known so many people who've heard sermons along this line. And when you preach something like that, you are grooming your community to believe that, uh, that women's bodies and their integrity and their wholeness, that it means less than a man's comfort. Mm. Uh, and the way you see this happen with abusers and their victims is, for instance, an abuser can... Um, Like, let's say you have an abuser that's going to be coming to Thanksgiving dinner, Mm -hmm. and the victim will also be at that Thanksgiving dinner. If the victim tries to say in certain families, I don't want to come because he's going to be there, um, certain family members can pressure her into, oh, but you need to go. It doesn't matter whether or not she'll be triggered. It doesn't matter whether or not she'll feel violated. It doesn't matter whether or not she could be victimized. What matters is, oh, but you'll hurt his feelings, or you'll hurt someone else's feelings, right. or you'll make someone else uncomfortable. So someone Gosh, else that's so common, I think, especially yeah. with a lot of our listeners who are, you know, in the thick of their healing journey and trying to navigate yeah. boundaries and make good decisions for themselves or self-care you know, yep. these are the things they're running into constantly. Absolutely. This idea that someone else's comfort is more important than their own potential trauma. Mm. Um, and it's being taught from the pulpit in, in certain kinds of interpretations of, of biblical texts. Yeah. It's absolutely horrific. Well, anyway, so those are some of the ways. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, how over time, whether it's, you know, for me in so many different ways, even outside of my abuse, um, dysfunctional behavior that was reinforced over and over again. And then all of a sudden I turn mm-hmm. around in my mid to late 30s and I'm like, who the hell am I and what do I need and yes. what do I want? Because I have has been ingrained in my brain that I am there to serve others always, no matter what, yep. no matter how uncomfortable I am. Yeah. yeah. Um, yep. And yeah, I'm sure mm-hmm. a part of that does come out of my abuse without me even realizing it half the time. But mm-hmm. I think whether it's in church or in the workplace or it's just constantly reinforced. Yeah. And then it takes more courage to step up and go against the grain because everyone yep. has turned into these robots that do everything to make everybody else happy, even though they're yeah. being abused or. manipulated or controlled yeah and there's feedback Mm -hmm. there's reward for that especially within the church i think you know that you you get a pat on the back for that but meanwhile you're dying inside because of your Mm -hmm. trauma stacked up on top of all the rest that you're trying to deal with and now you're making everyone else's needs you know in front of yours it it can look like you're the greatest servant but i don't think that's Mm -hmm. what jesus called us to do no no i you know 
and as far as having an abundant life, you can't even pursue one no, right. you know, no. in, in that state because you don't even know, like you said, you don't know who you are, you don't know what you want, no. um, and you're, you've been trained to respond to other people's emotions mm-hmm. and recognize those. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of buries you, like your own identity yeah. and who God made you to be. It's so yeah. buried underneath everyone else's needs and desires for you. Mm-hmm. You you yeah, have to I think, work hard to mm-hmm. kind of crawl up out of that. Absolutely. I think that's part, you know, that's definitely part of the whole healing process is, this, mm-hmm. you know, removing all this weight and, and filth and yeah. um, just all this other stuff to become, you know, to become who God created you to be. And um, you have to uncover just so much to even begin to start. I mean, everybody has to. That's your life journey. Become who God created you to be. But if you've experienced that kind of violation um, of your body and your your soul, um, you know, in a sexual way or even with physical abuse or, um, you know, emotional and psychological abuse, um, it's Mm -hmm. just it's there's just more to get through to get to the point where you can even start doing that. Yeah. There's a lot here, Maureen. You're so smart. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we totally veered off completely. I know. <laughs> I know, but it all relates. And I really, yeah, I, I think it's it's good for us to always be thinking about these kinds of things, even while, mm-hmm. you know, we're dealing with the triggers in the media. It, it's triggering yeah. all of these other thoughts anyway. So let's talk yeah. about it. Yeah, I had no idea. I had so much to say about it that first day. I just knew I was so uncomfortable with yes. what everybody was um you know, posting mm-hmm. about um, Epstein's suicide. And I was like, why is this making me so uncomfortable? And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it took me a while to kind of, like, be able to articulate anything mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've had to think about it and think about it and, and read some more and, you know, read some of your stuff and read some of um, Anna Salter's stuff and other survivor stuff. And, mm-hmm. and finally I was like, okay, yeah, this is... <laughs> Yeah, the shit upset people. Well, yeah. And it was funny because I was having some of the same feelings. And the day that it his suicide, you know, was released, it mm-hmm. there were people that were, you know, texting or emailing or tagging me on social media and being like, I'm thinking of you today. And I was just like, why? Yeah. But then yeah. it started. To, <laughs> I know. Like, what? You were like, oh, thanks. I know. Oh, you didn't like, know why like yet. praying for you. I'm like. Why are you praying? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I appreciate it, but like, should I be not okay right now? Right. Then... <laughs> should I be not okay right now? Right. Uh, I'm like, okay, oh, permission to not be okay today. You're like, yes. yes. Head to the bar now. <laughs> no, but it really, later it did start to hit me. And yeah. I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting it. Um, yeah. And so it was real interesting then when you had reached out and you wanted my thoughts on it, because then I was like, oh, this is why. (laughs) And it helped me (laughs) begin to process it. And um, so I really appreciated your thoughtfulness towards it. And, you know, thank you. And asking Mm -hmm. me also. So, yeah. And I think even if your abuser didn't, take that way out it still can be triggering and it's good to think about absolutely you know Mm -hmm. all of the ramifications that come from disclosure or exposing someone and Mm -hmm. and what that looks like how that can feel and how we should be responding and i mean again i would say the way we should always be responding is is first being mindful of victims and survivors Mm -hmm. um you know how is what i'm about to post or say or do 
um, going to be understood in that way. Gosh, you know? that is um, that is key. That is really mm-hmm. key. We have yeah. to look at it through that lens. Whenever we're mm-hmm. talking about a story involving some type of sexual assault, we have to look at it through a survivor's lens before we open our mouths or start making some sort of post. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was one time I wrote a while back, I forgot what the trigger was, but there was something in the news about abuse. And I I wrote a post about, um, you know, living in the tension, like, okay, you know, victims experience this ambivalence. It's really difficult. We experience it on a day to day. Um, and it's not easy, and that maybe everybody else should just take a step back before they start to voice their opinions Mm -hmm. and try to experience the ambivalence, live in the tension, Mm, um, before they make up their mind to then post something. But it's it's difficult. People just want to kind of, you know, throw stuff out there. And, again, I think that part of the motivation is good. Like, I think that in some cases people think that they're being supportive of victims when they're, you know, super anti abusers. <laughs> yeah. But I also think that some of it makes them feel a little bit safer. You know, if if we can, you know, attack, it feels better than um having to live with the questions and um, you know, feel all the the ick. Yeah. that comes with all this. Yep, living in the tension of right now, I think is that is what our culture needs and it it is what it mm-hmm. is and so we have to be present. We have to show up. And we have to listen that yes. whether it comes to sexual abuse or racism or whatever, we have to yes. be willing to humble ourselves and just open our ears and not have to say something about everything. Absolutely. Well, this was really good. Thank you, Maureen, for your time, for for your constant support and just for being a voice for all of us. I really admire you and, and Mary and I, I know we both really appreciate your friendship. And yeah. We look forward to doing more of these with you. Thank you for having me back on, and, and, and ditto for all the admiration. And um, you guys are so brave to me and courageous with the, just everything you do, and it's just amazing. Thank you so much for being here today, for listening. If you want to hear more about Maureen's story, you can check out her podcast that we recorded on February 21st. That was in 2018. It's called Profiling a Predator. And don't forget to subscribe and feel free to write a review if you heard something you liked. Invite others to be on this healing journey with us. Check out our website at IamOneVoice.org or find us on Facebook.